welcome to the Call Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call Like I See It, we're going to discuss recent reporting coming out of the Middle East that for years now, Israel's government has played a role or has backed the propping up of Hamas and the Hamas government in Gaza. Uh, through its backing of millions in funds that were from Qatar that were going to Hamas. And later on, we're going to react to the report that the richest 1% of people in the world are putting out as much climate change causing carbon in the atmosphere as the poorest two-thirds of, of the world, you know, 5 billion people or so. And so and just kind of what, discuss what that means from the standpoint of we're trying to get this, this is something we're trying to get under control. Joining me today is a man who keeps a positive attitude, even if he tends to look at the downsides of things from time to time. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, are you ready to show the people why things are only kind of blue? Yeah, man. You know, you're supposed to let them get through the show to learn that I'm going to be glass half empty. You know, <laughs> negative guy. You know who, who my new nickname should be is remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's me. Yeah, you can't that's give yourself your own nickname, though, man. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe someone awesome. else can do that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but no, we're recording this on December twelfth, twenty twenty-three, and since the surprise attack on Israel by Hamas, we've seen a lot of reporting on the millions or perhaps billions of dollars that Qatar has been providing to Hamas in Gaza. Uh. More recently, the reporting has gone deeper and focused on Israel's role in this and the Israel's backing of these payments. Um, and then also going into why Israel, though the why, so to speak, why would Israel would be backing these, even with Hamas's professed, you know, intention to destroy Israel and their, you know, hostility, so forth. And also members of the Israeli government who are outwardly hostile to Hamas and you know why they would be supporting back channel uh money coming to Hamas. Um, particularly, you know, looking at where, you know, some of the reporting is coming out that it, it, intelligence sources in Israel raised a lot of concerns about this and what the money was going to. So just at a most, most basic level, starting there, you know, what stands out to you about the reporting on Israel, you know, that, that they were backing the funneling of millions of dollars from Qatar to Hamas over the years? Um, I'd say for me, being an American that is not, you know, uh, constantly <laughs> looking at the situation there. Um, I was surprised uh, because it sounded like something that, you know, it's like, well, okay, the Israeli government knew and understood that billions of dollars flowed specifically to Hamas uh, in in over almost a decade. Um, That's shocking, you know, to when you understand the nature of the relationship between both governments, really, because Hamas is the government uh, in, in Gaza. And of the Palestinian people at the time, at the moment. So the, um, you know, I, I was first shocked to learn that, but then in reading further, um, uh, understanding this has been kind of an open secret in the Israeli world. Um, their media have been talking extensively about it. it. Seems like since 2018, it's been public information in Israel and been a big source of their political infighting among the Israeli people. So. You know, I would say I was surprised, but then I was surprised to learn that it wasn't something that was new to many Israelis. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it it's sounds it's especially in the context of what just happened with this huge yeah. attack, you know, surprise attack by Hamas on Israel. It sounds crazy like, oh, and they were 
you know, blessing the that the, these guys getting all this money, you know, for all this time. But yeah, it, it actually it doesn't. W- once you dig into it a little bit, it seems kind of it's 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 a, it's somewhat understandable at the top level, saying okay. You know, a lot of this money is going to pay salaries of government employees or teachers and so forth. And there is concern and there has been concern the whole time that that money, one, money is fungible. So if you're if money is being provided to pay for these th- important things, things that are good for the people, then other money can be diverted to to pay buy weapons or things like that. Or that that money also was going to to, to buy weapons or things used that ultimately use could be used to attack uh, Israel. And so. You understand the concerns from that standpoint, but at the same time, there's just, I mean, there are a couple million people there. And so the the idea in general that money is going there, um, like there does need to be, you know, money that is spent to to make that society work there. And then that Hamas is in charge, I think, complicates it because Hamas and their their outward and kind of just their 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 principled stand or their 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 bottom line stand, I should say, more so like their their stand that is their defining stand is the best way I want to say it, that Israel shouldn't exist. And so that's what complicates it. If Hamas isn't that, if Hamas is just seen as a government and saying, okay, yeah, this is government aid going to to them so that they can do their operations, then you know, it doesn't sound as shocking. You know, so I think it's the who the who with Hamas. Um, and then also the who with some of the people in Israel who we're okay with this that really makes this stand out. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's why, look, this conversation is is great because what we're doing and going to continue to do is do something called nuance. <laughs> I say it with a smile because everyone knows what, what I'm saying. Um, and I, I, I joked, I think, on a recent show, we weren't talking about Israel, but I made, um, you know, on this whole uh, conflict that's been happening since October, um, but I made a comment that I said, you know, I just did a side comment about something in the region. And then I said, I'm not going any further because there's a bunch of landmines in that conversation and we're guaranteed to step on them. Right. And so I think that we can say that today, that this is one reason why I enjoy this kind of conversation, because this is probably one of the most complex issues in the modern world right now. The whole Israel and its neighbors and the last 75 years of that experience and there's a lot of people that have built up emotional um, kind of uh, cash capital on both sides of the issue. Um, both the Israelis and the Jewish population um, has very strong feelings. And of course, there's Arabs and the Muslim population that also have very strong feelings. And we are sitting here in the United States watching it from the outside, but still heavily involved. So what, what made me think of just in, in reading this and kind of getting reminded is, Really, this this is this is geopolitics, and this is, you know, it's nation state stuff. Even though you know the, we're talking about the idea of a whether a two state solution within one nation with the Palestinians um, and Israel can can they figure that out? But and Israel, I want to pass it back to you to more like your thoughts on this, because in reading about this whole thing with Israel understanding and allowing Hamas to have hundreds of millions of dollars a year, which led to billions over a long period of time, um, funneled through Qatar, is like, I, I feel like there's always these these calculations and, and assumptions being made by leaders of all sides um, on, with, with various circumstances. So what can we discuss about the circumstances prior to, let's say, October 7th that might have um, motivated Israel to want to pursue this kind of strategy after it had pursued other strategies that maybe it felt didn't work. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, and I don't want to get actually to specific, you know, because there's there's a lot of discussion on the motivation, and I want to talk about the motivation right now. Just kind of before I get there, though, one of the things I think, and and I think this is the piece that is the most important because if you frame this issue as, and I touched on this briefly, but I just want to make it more clear: the if you frame this issue as Qatar provides millions in aid to Palestinians in Gaza. It doesn't sound that bad. You know, it sounds like, hey, that's probably, you know, like that these people that, you know, they, 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 you need power, they need teachers, they need all these things that, you know, and not, and it's not a big economy there to generate that kind of money. And so it makes a lot of sense. When you say that Qatar provided this money to Hamas, it's received completely different. And, you know, Hamas, part of the, the, the issue, I think, and this is going to get into the motivation is that, what really what looking observing Hamas over the past, you know, however many years and then particularly most recently um, and just kind of their approach to the, the 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 difficult situation is that Hamas seems to be an organization. And I'll use a word to actually use it here in the United States from time to time. But I think it's an interesting kind of parallel. They're built on grievance, like everything that they stand for is about we've been wronged. And so therefore we have to. The, the, the only way to make it right in, in their mind is to 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 get rid of Israel and to, you know, to, to take the land or have all of the land for themselves. And so as that being the organization, everything that is, every interaction with them is going to be clouded by that. And so, as you pointed out, aid going from one nation to another is not something really we blink about normally, you know. And so but it's the fact that it's Hamas that's in charge here. That that's going to then benefit from and be and in many cases some people call to put the term propped up by this aid that it be, gives us all this pause to say that hey we, we, should we be providing aid to a entity a government type entity who doesn't want to like their main goal isn't necessarily to take care of the people that they're governing their main goal is to try to take out somebody else and so. It, that's what raises the question to make it a little bit to make it a lot more complicated in terms of this this aid package. But ultimately, like I said, the, the money going to the Palestinian people is like, well, yeah, that's that's good. Somebody should be helping them out. You know, like that's they're in a tough spot there. Um, I do want to get to the motivation, though, you know, and then yeah. the motivations of well, you know, like the, the, there's humanitarian motivations, you know, in terms of why this money could be going or why Israel could be allowing it to go. There's other motivations that have been raised in terms of why Israel, you know, particularly like Israel has a political spectrum as well. There's people that are more hardline against um, the Palestinians or that, that don't want to have a two state solution. There are people that are interested in coexistence and, you know, possibly talking about that. And so one of the re revelations is that some of the people that are considered to be in the more in the camp that's more hostile to Hamas, including current prime minister Netanyahu, Netanyahu we're okay with this money going to Hamas, which is in opposition to their kind of public facing, hey, this is a, this group is we got to, you know, this group is a problem, so to speak. Um, do you buy, you know, that the motivation here, you know, from, you know, Netanyahu or, or like minded people? Um, and he, he, as you've pointed out, there was argument even amongst his allies of whether that was good, but amongst the people that were actually made it happen. Do you buy that this was more about humanitarian, more about possibly moderating Hamas? Like if Hamas is getting this money, then they may moderate. They may become less obsessed with destroying Israel. Or do you think there were more sinister kind of motivations in play, which some people have raised that by 
propping up Hamas. You keep the Palestinians divided between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and and so forth. And it makes it takes the pressure off, so to speak, to have to negotiate a two state solution or, or even go down that path. What what how yeah, do you mean think, in that? Well, I think you're hitting to the crux of what um you know, comes up in a lot of societies with all this stuff. And I think you did a great job of saying and acknowledging that, you know, there's a spectrum of political ideology in Israel itself, you know, that that like any other group, the Israeli people aren't a monolith that all just think one way. And same and with most notably to this conversation, also so are the Palestinians. You know, that's what like I was going to say. That, Palestinian Authority, which is more yeah. moderate, versus the Hamas, which is more you know like extreme. Yeah. And so, and and with its neighbors, I mean, look, every large group of human beings is going to have a spectrum of of people's opinion, and that's where you look at uh, democracies, which generally um, allow some of those ideas maybe to compete, and people vote in their leaders periodically, and and all that. Versus an authoritarian regime, which won't allow certain ideologies to to come up, but it doesn't mean that the human beings in those societies don't still share a diverse uh, spectrum of beliefs. And so the point I make with that is, yeah, I think to answer the question directly, it's probably a bit of both. And that might not be an answer that that satisfies some people, because, look, I can see it's like any other issue when you have humanitarian stuff and all that and you're dealing with different groups culturally, ethnically, and in this case, religiously, that don't trust each other. Because I think that most people, even the harder right Israelis um, that aren't too, you know, rabid in their views, will acknowledge there's humanitarian issues in Gaza and the West Bank and these areas where if you just don't have a lot of food or sanitation and all that, you can have disease and, and all that. They're like, people generally will accept that as a fact. Um, when there's a blockade and, you know, like you're not allowing a lot of like stuff coming in, like you're not allowing for the the, the, the place to really to, to reach its potential, so to speak. You right. know, so there's going to so, be created, you know, humanitarian concern. Yeah. And so with 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 that said, there's going to be people genuinely in the Israeli community that do believe like, hey, look, if we do allow the more humanitarian side to enter and all that, um, number one, we may be able to prop up the more moderate forces within the Palestinian uh, uh, area and the Gaza Strip, because they can then point to the fact that, um, you know, things are happening that are benefiting them that aren't the result of kinetic um, violence, right? Like it's not they had to go attack Israel to get something, maybe through negotiation. Again, politics, right? Talking to people, negotiating, compromising. Now, I recognize post-October 7th, I just want to say this for the audience that, that they don't think that we're sitting here with some utopian vision. Um, I recognize the idea of compromise for both sides now um, is is out the window um, and having some sort of seat at the table. So I'm just saying in general, how do we get here? And to answer your question about do I believe that there was a like a certain um, weight that there was more to one side that thought was let's allow this for humanitarian and more another side that said, let's figure out how to divide and conquer, because if we keep the Palestinians divided within themselves, we never have to negotiate with a two, for a two-state solution. I think that there is a truth that there's both in there. Now, the problem is for Netanyahu's government, I'm going to quote some things that, that, that have been said by people in his cabinet, is that people within his own government administration have openly spoke of having a strategy to not support a two-state solution. Yeah. And part of that strategy was undercutting the Palestinian Authority, who was more of the true um, political arm that was kind of designed to negotiate and all that, and to prop up Hamas, 
which is like we said, this is stated in their founding that their their military wing they want to destroy Israel. So yeah. I'm gonna quote here a gentleman named named Bezalel Smotrich. Apologies for any bad pronunciation. Um, he now serves as Mr. Netanyahu's finance minister now, so he's a government official under Netanyahu's uh, cabinet. He said in 2015. One effective way to prevent a two-state solution is to divide between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And then he says, "I um, if if um, the division gives this is now the article saying the division gives Mr. Netanyahu an excuse to disengage from peace talks." Mr. Brom said, adding that he can have no partner. Um, it says Mr. Netanyahu did not articulate this strategy publicly, but some on the Israeli polit polit political right had no such hesitation. And then it quotes this quote to the gentleman that says um, that I just mentioned, the Palestinian authority is a burden, he said. Hamas is an asset. When your finance and, and minister is exactly. quoted as saying that, that's that's kind of tough. <laughs> you know, because Particularly because that's the cynical view. And that's I, I think that right. is what's going on here, honestly. Like yeah. there are a lot of steps that Israel could take if it would for from a humanitarian con, uh, kind of construct that don't involve this kind of like you said, open secret funneling of money, you know, like there's a yeah. lot of ways that they could do ways that they could use to actively build goodwill amongst the yeah. people like this doesn't even actively build goodwill. Like, so Israel doesn't even get the full benefit from allowing this money in from humanitarian concern in terms of winning hearts and minds and saying, hey, we don't necessarily need to be your enemy here. Um, like they're not even benefiting from that. You know, they're still seen yeah. as the bad guy here, so to speak, because if money is getting brought in, you know, like it's not, not super officially. And so. I think it's definitely that they're, they're, they're the people in charge or the people who who have been in charge want to maintain a hostile relationship with uh, the Palestinians to avoid either negotiating a two-state solution or giving back territory or stopping settlements and so forth. And so Hamas is an asset for that. As long as Hamas is prominent, then the Israeli population can be point it can you can be point them at Hamas and say hey you know we gotta maintain a very you know like adversarial relationship with them because this is their stated goal we can't essentially this looks like Israel or some of the brain trust in Israel decided they can't allow Hamas to fail one of the things that happens a lot of times with these extreme groups is once they get in power and are unable to deliver a better life then well they come to power when a lot of times the moderates aren't delivering a better life for people and it's like hey you know you guys are talking about negotiation you guys are talking about all this other stuff and none of it's working and that's how hamas in large part came to power is that the palestinian authority was preaching moderation and wasn't getting anywhere you know and so the hamas comes in and then a lot of times that these guys these types of groups become you know the the dog that caught the car so to speak and you know and in, in the way that like you know, ISIS, you know, in certain areas in the Middle East, once they took over, they they didn't they couldn't govern. And so they start flailing. They start uh, they start losing the hearts and minds of people that they just won because it's like, oh, you guys are no better or you guys may be worse, you know, because you want to run around and fight and stuff, but you're not making anybody's lives better. So the propping up of Hamas includes allowing uh, the, the Palestinians to feel like Hamas is making their lives, you know, is not making their lives worse, so to speak. And so that to me is a is uh, like it's a cynical view, but it looks like that was the view that was taken by many that were in charge is that, hey, we're we want Hamas there. We want an adversary there, not someone who's willing to work with us to keep the pressure off of us having to work with them.
And that's a dangerous game to play. I mean, it, it, you, you see it in some of the, the quotes that are, you know, I mean, I saw you pull some of the quotes, but some of the quotes talking about that they didn't think Hamas, like some, there were certain reports, they didn't think Hamas was willing or able to attack anymore, you know, from a large scale standpoint. It, it's like, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, like there's like fairy tales and fables about yeah. this stuff. Like the, 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 like, oh yeah, they can't get me anymore. A lot of that. And then they came and got you. And it's like, oh man, like that's, that's a that's a very 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 I mean it's a betrayal of the people really you know like in my view in the sense that someone who says they're they're trying to get you and you're saying oh I don't think they're really going to get me let's let's keep them propped up and then they come and get you and it's like oh now the people who pay the price aren't isn't the prime minister who made the decision it's the people that were on the ground and yeah. you know like the citizens so I mean I re- I feel really bad for them from that standpoint and like Hamas you know being openly saying hey we are violently opposed to you and you know if, if, you, if you don't take them at their word and something happens to you then it's like man you know or something happens to your people then you know you've really dropped the ball yeah well that's where i mean there's a lot of correlation even though they're two very different events uh, that unfolded very differently that's where i see a lot of correlation with 9-11 for us right like this idea that um obviously al-qaeda wasn't our neighbor on our border and all this stuff but this idea that um um through grievances by a group like al-Qaeda and someone like Osama bin Laden to whatever they felt the United States had done in their region in the past, you know, there was 3,000 people on the morning of 9-11 that paid for that, unfortunately. Um, And then the similar kind of flow after that, right, our discussions internally as a nation of how do we respond to this? And remember, there were some Americans who, I remember specifically certain names like Phil Donahue, Bill Maher. Remember, he got his show politically correct on on the public airways um, canceled because he was going against um, certain responses we had to Iraq and Afghanistan afterwards after 9-11. And so there was this idea or not idea, but conversations about, well, this happened. And so should should we then one one answer could be to prop up, try and do more humanitarian over time, prop up the more moderates, help them build democracies and get out of this authoritarian streets and all that. And another was, no, we got to go get those guys and get them out and this and that. And if you remember, that's where it's, in, this is why it was a good reading this stuff about how Israel's handled itself in these recent years around this topic, because it just kind of reminded me that, yeah, people do have ideologies in leadership and all that and that's part of being a human so i'm not saying that you shouldn't but to your point the ideology of the netanyahu government um did not help the the case for not having hamas be such a dominant player and their ability to like you said money's fungible and we're hearing this not from detractors of 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 let's say political uh stuff or or people that are peaceniks and all that Again, I'm, I'm reading here from a gentleman named Yossi Kuperwasser, a former head of research for Israel's military intelligence. I mean, that sounds like somebody who's deep in the game. Um, said that some of some officials saw the benefits of maintaining an equilibrium in the Gaza Strip. And he quotes him as saying, the logic of Israel was that Hamas should be strong enough to rule Gaza, but weak enough to be deterred by Israel. And so again, that's a policy, I mean, again, at the time, that probably seemed to be the best way to deal with that situation. It's like, let's play this equilibrium where if we can keep it in balance, it'll be okay. It'll be strong enough. And it's but we don't have to go balance. to Gaza. It's a Correct. really it's tough, balance tough balance if you just hear it. And and just for a little context, 
because some of the alternatives, you know, like the hardliners are saying, hey, we should invade. We should like yeah, what's exactly. happening now, you know. And so they're like, oh, like so it was a middle ground, so to speak, to say, and, and, well, let's try to keep an equilibrium. And if we we don't know if if Hamas fails, we don't know if somebody worse is going to come in, you know, so to correct. speak. Or, and, or somebody and think about better. what you just said. Because I want to stay on that because you're right. It was a gentleman who's also an ally of Mr. Netanyahu was trying to get Benjamin Netanyahu in 2016 when he was when Netanyahu was prime minister prior um, to to basically, like you're saying, invade the Gaza Strip. And Netanyahu was like, no, nah, dude, we can't do that. And again, like I was thinking about it, I'm not going to blame Netanyahu for what happened in October for that decision in 2016, because in 2016, the world was in a different place. Imagine if Israel just went without um provocation and we saw the images we've been seeing now the airstrikes and the amount of people being hurt civilians without any provocation i mean what would the world have done then i mean the, the, well i mean you can the, see how public opinion has turned against israel now even correct, with the provocation saying, that, that we all like, just saw yeah so so and that was with provocation so yeah. without provocation imagine how much worse it'd be so that's again why why it, it allows me to see that like this just sucks honestly that's my professional definition and and there's just no, I mean, because here's the thing that I think no one, again, wants to really discuss with this specific powder keg. And we've discussed it on the top discussions we've had on this topic. So one is the fact that it, it, it's the sad reality that you've got a group of people and European Jews, this is their descendants primarily. I mean, there's a few Holocaust survivors left um, that were so discriminated against in their own homelands in the continent of Europe that they got they got kind of pushed out of the continent and said, OK, you guys go over here. And it was still at a time in the mid 20th century when the Western world powers. And this is where we have these issues now, even in our country, with how people see this. This idea of the colonial powers, you know, the Western European nations and their and, you know, the nations like ours that are offshoots of them in Australia and Canada and our allies like that, that this idea that unfortunately at the time, there was still that type of attitude amongst the Western nations, and they, they weren't as concerned about what's going to happen with the people that are already in the Palestinian region. And just, let's just shove the Jews here from Europe, and then we can just leave that alone and we'll figure it out. So because no one's really gone back to the start of this and said this was set up kind of in a way that didn't, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of messy, and we still haven't dealt with that. Every, everything after that has been an offshoot of it. And the second thing is, and this is going to be very inflammatory for me to say, but I think we need to look at, you know, this is all also stems from the influence of religion on humans. Unfortunately, that everybody feels like that's their homeland. And why don't we just say, yeah, every, it either is everyone's homeland and you got to figure out how to share it or... You know, let's have a greater discussion about why are we, this is 2000 year old Bronze Age stories that we're still like, think about all the emotional, mental, physical, financial energy that's going into these conflicts. And so I'll, I'll, I'll hand it back. Well, I'm back. I mean, oh, and that's kind of the thing. It, you, you tie it in with the religion and saying that, well, that's the yeah, reason like, why everybody can't just share it is because, <laughs> because it has this religious basis. You know, you know what? And, I wonder if someone would invent a country where the, Founding principles were that it was not to be governed by religion, but by the idea 
created within documents. Well, as you see secular. from the United yeah. States, the experiment we call the United States, that doesn't stop people from saying that <laughs> it's a religious country, even if the First Amendment of that country is even that the first you know, amendment there's no says establishment that. of a religion. Even yeah. if that, people will turn around and say, no, this is a religious country. This is and, and try to govern based on religion. So that's kind of just embedded in the human in, in the human psyche or in the psyche of many people, not all people, but just many people just want to view the world in those terms, want to govern the world in those terms. And most notably, which we'll get into, you know, like repeatedly, not govern the way that they live based on their religion, but govern the way that everybody else lives based on their religion. And that's, you know, just what we see here. It's it's always a lot of times with these religious th- disputes, it's about imposing what you want on other people, not about, oh, OK, I I believe that you should be good to people and so forth. So I'm going to be like that. You know, it's, it's always about or not not always, but it's oftentimes about imposing on other people. Um this is the, the the one piece I'll say on this, and then I want to move on uh, to to the last part on this. Is just that this is where we see, like a lot of times, the the more moderate approach is taken for granted because if you th- this this effort to prop up a more extreme faction in order to, so to speak, allow your more extreme fact- faction to 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 garner support in your nation hey if if the other guys are crazy you better put the crazy guys in your in your group in charge too to go against their crazy guys is that it real to me the illustration that, that or what's illustrated by this is that the you, you don't see this level of effort oftentimes hey let's prop up the moderate guys let's prop up the guys who are trying to find a a solution so to speak that every where everybody can live a cooperation a coexistence type of thing let's prop up those guys you you don't see that as often and that to me is the solution the solution is the people are responsive and i say the people this is any society they're responsive to who delivers for them as far as meeting their needs or creating a society where their needs can be met and so if the moderates, people who are coming at this from a cooperation standpoint, are treated a certain way and because they're not out there pointing a gun at you and saying, oh, well, we'll take it for granted. We'll, let's see us take them as far as we can go. Then you will they will lose support within their own faction, which is what happened with the Palestinian Authority uh, you know, earlier this century, basically. And that's how Hamas cut, rose to power in the first place is that the moderates weren't making progress. They weren't delivering, you know, quality of life and so forth. And then, then when the extremist gets in, then you say, Hey, let's appease them. Let's prop them up. And it's like, well, hold on. Why that same mentality, you could have a different approach, one that doesn't involve violence. If you take effort to, 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 to support and prop up the people who aren't preaching violence against you, but it doesn't go like that because the the, the people who again they, the extremists extremists around the world essentially beget more extremists. Like it, it's interesting that they're the ones that most passionately hate the other side, but they actually empower each other because by making it a more extreme world, the moderates are pushed out in a lot of societies or in, in societies in general. Yeah. And so it, it's it's one of those things that you know, like it goes back to one of those axioms from like the '60s where it's like, yeah, you can't shoot your way to peace, so to speak. You know, like you shoot. Then you're just creating more people that want to shoot back at you. And in this instance, what we're seeing here is that if you prop up the or it, 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 even if you're even if you take away the cynical view, even if your thought is, hey, let's maintain an equilibrium and so forth. If you prop up the maintain an equilibrium by propping up the the moderates or by helping them, you know, deliver for their people so that they so that the people stay behind them. because It's like, yeah, yeah, these guys, you know, like it, it may not be as emotionally satisfying, 
but it's something as far as, you know, we're going to get payback for all this stuff, emotionally satisfying in that way. But hey, I can eat, I, you know, my kids can go to school. They're safe. You know, we can put dinner on the table. So I'm good with these guys, you know, these modern. You know so, what the problem yeah, is, Danny? Real quick, very, I don't want to get to the, to the last yeah, yeah, no, but it's good what you're saying. The problem is, I say, there's two separate issues that I'm going to discuss. One is that the sad part is because we project all of us, right, me and you included, how we want to see the world. There's a lot of people that don't want to see the world like that, right? There are people out there yeah, that just yeah, yeah. do they believe want to impose that, and want to dominate, yeah, and moderates are in the way. For view of, yeah, and and I think that's where religion, unfortunately, the that part of religious doctrine, because religion is a wide spectrum too. We know that you know there there all the three Abrahamic religions have beautiful, eloquent you know parts about helping the poor and all that, and they also have about smiting people that don't believe in the deity just like you do. So. People choose which one of those they, they want to they want to follow, and the people that choose the one about the smiting the enemy, um, they're out there. And I think that's what makes this Israel Palestine issue. Just to finish up on your comment, so I think uh, I, I wouldn't say unique in that way because there's have been other tensions historically, but in our modern world, it's fairly unique for us today to be alive during this because I could see while you were talking. I could just see both an Israeli and someone from the Arab world yelling at you saying, yeah, but they did this first and that's why we got to behave this way. And to your point about the escalation, right? Yeah. But now we've got 75 years of that. So it's, it's too, it's, it's so far back in the history of who started what that no one even can, can co make it cohesive. Everybody always so, can point to something as justification correct. for why they're and, doing it. And there's, there's, so that's why just uh, go back legitimately, not like, making up you know not but it's it's you know it, it, everybody there there has been there's blood on everyone's hands is kind well, of that's the, why i say there's two issues one is how the thing was set up in the beginning that that, yeah. that for whatever reason it just doesn't uh it's not conducive for that type of dialogue the second thing is the religion part because this again where everybody in the world has egg on their face for this i mean look at the united nations was developed to try and prevent more world wars and more things like that but yet the United Nations, one of the first things has, it did, has has not. Yeah, well, it was this? Yes, yeah, yeah. point created a big conflict for us to deal with for another hundred years. But then also, like again, it can't nuance itself because, like, it hasn't been able to just condemn, let's say, sexual violence against the Israeli women from October seventh. But the reason why I believe it won't do that is because of its belief of religious fealty, meaning people within the UN that don't want to say anything, let's say, in support of a Jew and against a Muslim. So that's where the religion part comes in and makes it so difficult, because let's say, hypothetically, the Israelis can maintain their country. They're still surrounded by all these neighbors that are going to be upset. So, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it. it that's a you know an excellent point in terms of just the way that the religion will... You know, like it, it's almost like an, it, an, an analogy yeah. here actually would be the partisanship when we have extreme partisanship. And it's like, hey, even if my side is wrong, I'm not going to acknowledge that because I just can't we we, we can't show them that, you know, like there's either not 100 percent solidarity or whatever. But it creates the situations where we're people aren't operating necessarily on right and wrong. They're operating on one side or the other, so to speak. And so it's difficult to a lot of times to find you know, coexistence, you know, and cooperation in that type of a setting. Um, but I, the, the last piece, and I will have to make this quick, uh, just, yeah. just to keep things moving. But uh, what do you make of Qatar's role in this, you know, in terms of, you know, 
putting up a lot of this money or they at least you know money's going through them but a lot of times it's, it's their money too that's a wealthy nation you know and then the uh the, the the other side of saudi arabia but you know middle eastern nation and you know so what are your what's your thought on that right there i mean reading up about um their influence in the region i mean i've always heard of the country but but um obviously reading in more detail gave me a little more clarity so I, it's just fascinating uh, that, again, they are a very small nation. They're about twice the size of Delaware, from what I learned, and they have a population of 300,000 people. So I found I was well, like, no, oh, that's okay. citizens. There's many more right. people than there. There's like almost 2 million people there, but they're, it's like, there's not all of them are citizens. Okay. So, so, but still, I mean, even just 2 million people, I mean, to have the, the type it's of not, influence they have, yeah, it's, it's pretty big. And obviously, it comes from, you know, fossil fuels and oil. And what I found interesting is they are a player that's kind of they they've got allies all over the place and they they're kind of like in the middle of a lot of this stuff. So they they share an underwater um uh you know under the sea gas well with Iran. So they have obviously a partnership with Iran and are on their border. Then they've got they're like you said on the border of Saudi Arabia and that relation and Saudi Arabia and Iran hate each other. So they're always in the middle of all these these things. And then we have a massive air base um, in that country, which, again, is it's it's I'm going to assume that ours having a massive military presence. And that's where we house our central command, uh, you know, CENTCOM for, you know, the world is there. I'm pretty sure that also keeps the region a little bit of a lid on things. So I found Qatar's role in all this very interesting um that they seem to be this 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 small country that's developed a very unique role in the region and therefore the world in keeping these negotiations they're very instrumental for the hostage release recently and all that kind of stuff so yeah i mean i think that honestly i mean i did you use again set aside you 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 put the labels on all oh, the money's going to hamas and stuff like that the complexity that i spoke about but generally speaking you need people that can talk to everybody you know, and yeah. so Qatar, Qatar has a security, you know, partnership with the U.S., U, largest U.S. presence, as you were pointing out, some of the, the details of that largest U.S. presence in the, in the Middle East. They, you know, they deal with Iran on certain things. They they were the ones who, you know, were able to negotiate a lot of the hostage releases, you know, as far as being a go between. So, I mean, to me, it seems like it's good to have someone in this instance, you know, like playing the role of Qatar who has a relationship with people on different sides of, you know, like different or different, you know, everything's not one side or the other. There's, you know, they're, they're, they're four-sided or, you know, six-sided or whatever, but has has a relationship with a lot of people. And one that can, they, you, they can serve as a conduit to try to build some trust for conversations and so forth. So, you know, that they were, now from them, um, I don't know, you know, from what I've seen, I don't know that you look at the same, or you look at it in, as cynically in terms of why they would be looking to to to, to provide uh, aid, funding, so to speak, to to Hamas and to to the Palestinians in Gaza. Um, I mean, that seems to be that's been going on a long time. You know, like that doesn't yeah. seem to be about helping Hamas attack Israel. Like they know that that's going to be a part of it or whatever, but or at least you know that's going to be something. But they seem to be really also in that a lot for yeah. making sure that the people's lives are, are are decent. It's a wealthy nation, you know. So them helping spread the wealth like that again is something that you would look at as something that is you know something commendable. So, yeah. but it's it, again the complexity of it. If it's Qatar is giving money to Palestinians, it's like okay, yeah, somebody needs to be helping them out. You know, it's a, they're in a real tough spot. But it's it's oh they're giving it to Hamas it's like oh you know what's happening there so it's just it gets received a different way but overall like I said I think their role is is a vital role here 
in that they've built up a certain level of of credibility and trust with people in a lot of different places. And that's yeah. helpful when you have these type of these conflicts, you know, or these issue, yeah. ish situations where there's people that are upset on each side and it's hard for them to talk to each other. It's hard for them to build trust directly. Yeah. And, and the one thing I just finished off and saying for this section is, um, you know, even just from preparing for today was another reminder why I think us in the West and in America, we need to be very careful when we discuss and make assumptions about what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, I learned in reading that, um, remember when Donald Trump, when he was president, I think it was early in his administration, sent a tweet that Qatar was like a terrorist nation or something, yeah. and it caused a big uproar. And I kind of thought about that in preparing for today, so I wanted to read about it. And what happened was because, again, Trump you know, personally has a fondness and with the Saudis. Saudis don't like Qatar um, because um, of Iran and their relationship with Iran. And there's just a whole thing. And so what and I read there's was- just a, There's a jockeying thing that's correct. going on there in terms but check of- check this out, this kind of level of detail, which is that um, what happened, they're saying is that Iran, uh, uh, um, sorry, Qatar paid $1 billion to an Al-Qaeda affiliate in Iran. And that upset Saudi Arabia. So what the hell are you guys doing here? And so, and so what happened is they said, allegedly the free- members of the royal family, the Qatari royal family, who were captured during a hunting trip. I mean, think about that because of the vast areas that they're in. So these guys are out hunting, probably went over the border, maybe to Iran or something, and then get captured by these guys who are this Al-Qaeda affiliate. And so it's really a ransom. I mean, if this is all true, right? Like, And so they got to pay a billion over there. That's Saudi. And that's what I mean by all these. We can relate to that with this tribal and ethnic history that these people have in the region. And that's why I say for us to come in there and always have our opinions about what, how they should be doing and living their life. And then again, like we said, for the world to put a European group of people and stamp them right in the middle of there, when you have all of this pre-existing kind of ethnic tensions and all that in the region, it's it's no wonder this is a powder keg and it's not going to stop. Yeah, there's the religion, so. and we didn't even mention the sectarian, like within the that's same religion, saying, there's a lot the of Sunni Shia and then the different ethnicities, meaning there's tribes that go, Bedouin tribes that go back a thousand, two thousand years, where they have history with each other, either either allies or not. So yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and that's <clears throat> the, the, the complexities we can we can we we one could be easily manipulated, you know, if we're if we don't take time to kind of figure out what we're talking about here. And because there's just a lot of complexities, like you said, that we're we're just we don't come in yeah, with a level of knowledge of all of the stuff that's happening, you know, like with, with all that stuff. So like for us to know, appreciate it's like when people look from outside and say, how can we still talk about the civil war in this country? Right. Like, well, that's an we're easy. very, that's a very complex, I mean, but it seems easy, but it's not right. I mean, we're still sitting here arguing about it. Oh, it's easy later. though. States rights. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Thanks, man. I can go about my day. Glad I could clear that up for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Didn't know it was that easy. <laughs> Call me after the show. Let me know what else is just that easy to figure out in life. <laughs> uh, all right. So no, but we, we got to move to our second topic. Uh, it was just uh, something actually that you had sent me uh, a couple of weeks ago, that, which was, you know, it's one of those shocking headlines. Uh, richest 1% emit as much carbon as the poorest two thirds, uh, you know, in, in the world. And, you know, like that's, <laughs> the scale of that's actually hard to understand, you know, in terms of because we're talking about a lot of carbon, you know, like and so, but basically, in terms of the the, the carbon, our, our emission of carbon dioxide, you know, and, and carbon and so forth into the atmosphere 
is, is carbon is a greenhouse gas. So that traps heat. That's what greenhouse gas means. You know, like Venus is hotter than Mercury because it has a bunch of greenhouse gases in its atmosphere, even though Mercury is closer to the sun. So we're putting a lot more greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and the, the understanding that that's going to cause uh, more heat to be trapped, more heat, you know, to, to be trapped in the earth and the, the climate to, to change um, because of that. So it, what's your reaction to seeing that, you know, in terms, it's not equal opportunity in terms of us as, you know, citizens of the, or, you know, people in the world um, that are you know, pumping out carbon into the atmosphere. And that actually there is some people, some people are bear a lot more responsibility to, to how much, you know, we're, we're putting how much carbon we're putting in the atmosphere versus others. Well, since you allowed me to have such an easy solution to our issues with dealing with the civil war and our cultural <laughs> wars here, um, I will just say that it was my impression. I was told that it's um, somehow combined with ESG and the great replacement theory, this whole thing about the <laughs> okay, so you want me to be serious again? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. I um now this was interesting, man. It's not surprising that I felt like they did they did have some stats that I was like, well, how did they come up with this number? I think when they said like just like that guy Carlos Slim, that one of the wealthiest people in the world on his own is responsible for like some huge percent, like 10% of all emissions. Mm -hmm. Um I, I realized like, yeah, it's not like him personally, just by flying his jet around 24 hours a day or something. Um, it's, his, it's because it's things he owns. And correct. It's yeah. because the way that I guess Mexican capitalism works is he can own actually a whole infrastructure of, of the, <laughs> the oil and gas utility. So in a sense, um, and I, this is probably public information because I would assume if that's the case, then we could include the Saudis and the Qataris and, these other people that are sitting on mass oil uh, uh, deposits. So, but long story short, yes, I think like most things that we look at um, when you deal with a, a large population, those at the top of the wealth class generally are going to have a larger impact on on on, on whatever it is. So, yeah. so yeah. So if you look at tax policy, we see those stats that yeah, wealthy people pay more taxes than non-wealthy people, and of course, wealthy people who have the means to do things like travel more, maybe get in private jets, have multiple cars, um, you know, so on and so own businesses that themselves, the businesses may produce, you know, greenhouse gases. Um, it, it, it stands to reason that those who have the means of using the tools of our, our technology and society will, will probably um, um, have more of an impact than those who are still foraging in the woods. Um, and it's interesting because we pick on the 1% a lot, but, you know, to say that most of us probably uh, in Western worlds fall into the top 10%, you know, many people, I'd say middle class and upper middle class in, in Western countries, uh, they said that, that, that just the top 10% in the world makes up 50% uh, of all the, the, the carbon output. So, you know, I would say most of us in Western nations you know, it's, it bears some responsibility and, and it's understandable understanding who produces fossil fuels. Yeah, no, no, no. And I mean, yeah, this is one of those like if it, it, it strikes you, you know, the headline is to make you click, you know, type of thing. But it makes a lot of sense. I mean, like the 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 the, the people who are the richest one percent control a lot more tools of industry and tools of transportation and tools of all that. So I think the bigger takeaway here is that. A lot of times we end up in this situation where, where we, could, we have this Jedi mind trick going on where everybody's supposed to, in terms of the solution, everybody's supposed to contribute equally. 
And that's just not the case. Like there are some people that need to contribute a lot more in terms of the solution. And that's okay. And there's some people that, you know, their 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 contributions to the problem are very low and their contribution to the solution will be very low as well. And so when you talk about like a concept like progressive tax rates, uh, you know, like, oh, that's not fair. It should just be a flat tax. Well, no, like the the the, the nature of a progressive tax rate is that as you increase in, let's say, strength, then you should carry a heavier burden. And it's not supposed to be proportional. It's going to be exponential, you know? And so to me, that's really what, what the takeaway I see this is, is that we should be asking more of the people who are the, doing the best among us in terms of solving the problems. And, and really, it's foot in the bill, but also whatever other kind of in-kind contributions that need to be made in terms of solving the problems of society. Now, the problem is, is that the few are easier to organize than the, the many. And so while the few are outnumbered by the many, that's always been the case. You know, there's been the haves and the have-nots and the haves know how to manipulate the have-nots so that the have-nots never look around and say, hey, you guys should be doing more for, 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 for this whole humanity thing. And so it's a difficult, it's an uphill climb. You know, I'd argue it's only happened once, you know, in history, really. You know, you look at like the post-New Deal uh, you know, United States, you know, where you, you really had this situation, a more egalitarian society where, you know, people still were, there were still rich people. They'd still made a lot of money, but in terms of the way society worked, there was, they, you had this largest middle class in the history of the world and all that, but going beyond just the income, again, I think we should look at this and understand that this is why when we say there should be a higher burden on people who do well, this is the kind of reason why that is. Yeah, no, it's it's a very interesting point. I mean, even when you talk about the New Deal, it makes me think of, I mean, you know, again, people could be upset that I say something like this, right? But the New Deal was an excellent program to lift many Americans out of poverty and build us the, the largest middle class in world history within a generation or two later. Um, but you know what? Um, the original New Deal excluded Blacks. Um, remember that, that, that was a negotiation. Well, the, a lot of the programs did a lot of, yeah, programs. that, that, that a lot of the, the, the negotiations when they were designed again, politics and compromise, right? The compromise was for the Southern states to get on board with Roosevelt was again, they wanted to make sure that blacks weren't going to eat off this and, and, and have some sort of benefit from the new deal. So, and it took, you know, a little bit of while for it to include blacks, right? So we can even say, and that's why to me, this is a more difficult lift for us as humanity, because I just gave an example of within a country where compromises had to be made and not everybody was allowed to participate in, at least initially, and in, in again, the, the outcome of that compromise in discussing the New Deal. Now we're just gonna try and get nations around the world to agree that the wealthier nations somehow need to fund the poorer nations and blah, blah, blah. I don't think this is gonna work. And I think that, um, this doesn't look good for humanity moving forward. Um, the earth will be fine as we joke, but, um, you know, we're going to have our some, some may not ma major issues with our habitat and die offs with species that's going to lead. Cause remember, we need bees to pollinate flowers and all that. Maybe cockroaches don't and fish in the sea don't care about bees dying, but you know, it's going to affect how we deal with food and everything else. So, cause I, I want to pull some things from here. I mean, from the UN report on this, um, you know, again, a quote from it to address, to address climate change, we'll need to dramatically reduce inequality and provide support and climate compensation to the less wealthy nations. And I'm sort of reading like, like oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> oh, I no. see here, it also suggested a 60% tax on the income of the world's wealthiest 1%, which the report calculated would lead to a $700 million ton reduction in coal emissions. 
So that sounds great and pie in the sky. Yeah. Who the hell is going to confiscate Elon Musk, Carlos Slim, like you said, the, the head of this, you know, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Sal Salman's income from Saudi Arabia? I mean, you really want to go to the top world 1% and say, we're going to tax you at 60%. Yeah. Yeah. And then who's going to collect that tax, right? And then who's going to make sure we just had a whole part one about money being fungible and money that was supposed to go to humanitarian stuff in Gaza is something that got siphoned off to Hamas. So who's going to make sure that all that money that you're taxing these top 1% is going to go directly to help the earth and the climate and not be siphoned somewhere else? Well, it, that's it, why there, I just think corruption involved and then it'll just be some, a whole nother thing. But and, and that's why I think we're in an inevitable track here. And I saw like I appreciate anyone who's trying to do the right thing with the environment. I'm not going to like say we shouldn't. But reading this stuff and knowing how human beings are and assuming that the top 1% is going to agree to a 60% wealth tax and the alternative because will be Because they would have to tax themselves, to your point. Correct. Who's like, going to do gonna it? Do it would have to be themselves. <laughs> you know, like it would have to be. No, they're going to build know, more Saudi Arabia ships. would have to, to tax its own people, which would be the rulers of Saudi, Saudi Arabia and this type of thing. And so it's just not going to happen, so to speak. Think about this. But billionaires are going to spend more money trying to get to Mars or build an Elysium type of thing. Because that seems more forward thinking if you're at that level, right? Like, oh man, I don't want to trust all these people, these idiots with my money. <laughs> like, I'd rather just build something and get out of here and see if we can figure that out. I just don't, I, that's, I'm very discouraged reading this, actually. I just don't well, see. Yeah, it, it goes under what it would take, so to speak. And Correct. I mean, yeah, just, there is a, and this goes back, you know, throughout human history, so to speak, at least as far as we can tell, you know, like we weren't around to see the hunter gatherers and so forth. Um, but, the the impetus to externalize your costs and internalize your 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 profit, so to speak, or your benefit, is what we're what ultimately what this comes down to in a lot of ways is that you know like yes, like it, putting carbon into the air as opposed to having to capture it or something like that is is a way to externalize the cost and that makes allows you to make more money. You internalize your profit from that standpoint. I mean that's taught and you know from a corporate standpoint a lot of times is how can we do this and so the environment and therefore the people end up getting a short shaft in that unless there's some government there to create a disincentive to do that now the 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 60 percent tax you know like you, you that harkens back to you know in the united states there was 75 percent tax top tax rate at one point 93 top tax rate percent 98 three percent and what that's supposed to do you're not really going to collect that you know, that, that type of tax a lot of times, what it's supposed to do is change behavior. And this is something that oftentimes is not thought about in terms of tax rates and tax policy is the way that tax rate and tax policy can be used to change behavior. And what you end up doing when you have a confiscatory tax like that is you change the behavior. You say, all right, well, I'm just not going to, at least above board, I'm not going to make that much money. Because if I make that, if I pull that much money out, then I'm gonna. I'll have to give it all up. So I will put money back. I will reinvest the money in other ways, or donate the money, or do anything. I'll do things with the money to make sure that I don't hit that top tax rate. And the the point of a high tax rate on the top one percent to try to re, try to to change behavior from a pollution standpoint would be similar, you know. So, but I think it yeah, it's not going to happen worldwide. The question would be whether. People, particularly in, in governments that you know maybe are of the people, by the people, and for the people, you know those type of governments if they exist, uh, where people get tired of it and said, okay, look, we're gonna we're gonna go about this in a different way, and 
we're going to use tax policy as one of our tools, one of our one of the bullets in the gun, so to speak, to try to change behavior and be a leader in this field. And then other countries would probably get on. Now, you you would never get and you wouldn't necessarily need every country to be involved, you know, but you could get there are a lot of things that countries have done that defy logic, so to speak. It defies logic, you know, and nuclear anti-proliferation defies logic in many ways. So there are ways, or it is possible, so to speak. It's unlikely. And as long as kind of the the elements that push, whether it would be, you know, kind of this personal, I, you know, I, I'm on my own, I'm going to do all this on my own, and I'm not worried about everybody else. As long as those elements are in charge, obviously nothing would happen because every those elements are always looking to externalize any costs you know, to everybody else and say, hey, you know, you guys deal with it. I'm, I'll be off, you know, in my castle somewhere and, you know, <laughs> doing what I need to do or whatever. I mean, castle is probably a 500 year dated, you know, reference, but whatever the people with with all the speak whatever the has to do now. With speak for yourself. <laughs> I got well, a, I got a chateau somewhere in Europe. I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> um, well, you just told everybody. Nah, bro, well, listen, as we conclude the show, this is a great finale because um, we joked at the beginning about me being glass half empty. And we actually had an organic way that I ended the show glass half empty because I appreciate that you say with the nuclear anti-proliferation treaties and all that, that yeah, people can, you know, do things that are against, you know, that might be in their interest, but listen, that's- This that's, ain't gonna be one of them. <laughs> no, because that's between maybe just a few countries that have nukes and that's just something big out there and they all, I'm sure someone will pay someone else to make sure that- I, that's all thing. We're talking about confiscating people's money. <laughs> well, and, that, again, that that's no, we, I don't know no, that we, that's the that's so to speak the answer. No, but, but it's also just, on a serious note why I'm saying glad just even after the first topic because you're asking different nation states and cultures that all look at this stuff different and all like we talked about in the first part. People have paranoia against the other side and all this. I mean, think about us in China. Who's going to blink first with a climate discussion and really be serious and trust that the other one's not? Got coal factories and all this stuff. I can make the same argue about anti-proliferation with nuclear. Who's going to blink first? Like and yeah, yeah, but it's it's a lot. It's a lot. But there's a lot less. Think about it though, because to do that, to not do nukes, is a very small slice of any country's kind of budget economy and all that. To ask third world or emerging market countries to not have factories that operate on coal right now, when we don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the money to do some other type of fuel. That's that's just. But Unless I agree, except the fact yeah. until one of them comes up with another way to do it, and they become they become the richest country in the world because they figure out another way to do it, and everybody else is trying to copy that. I mean, but I think that's I, the argument. Again, what of, it relies on, and I want I do want to wrap us up, but what it relies yeah. on, and this is what I think your comments reveal, reveal, and I don't disagree, is it relies on what things we don't know yet. And so it, until we know, we, because we don't know them yet, it's impossible to see them. If we could see them, then we would be the one to introduce them. And then we'd be the one that is the next, you know, ultra rich person. But um, you don't know yet. And we're counting on it, though. We're counting on, you know, to either some type of a solution or some type of an approach that can then be adopted and then take us in a different direction. But right now, yeah, with what we know now, it doesn't appear that there are any kind of direct paths to make something like this happen, um, to to be able to, to create an incentive to have people not pollute to the same degree that they do, unless we can get a religion that yeah. is anti-polluting. Then, hey, I mean, from what you talked about in the first section, we might be able to make it happen then. If there's a religion that says, <laughs> hey, polluting is anti-God, you know, then, <laughs> then it becomes an irrational belief. 
that polluting is bad and you, you can get people to <laughs> again you got me to god i was going to say something else but now i can say something this with a glass half empty all the religions seem to say that god created the earth right <laughs> you think that that would be enough that we okay, don't so be one, that'll be one of the parts of the religion that people ignore yeah, that we don't want to hurt God's creation. Focus on the smiting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, That's the sad part. So. Nah, but anyway. I, I think we can wrap from there. Uh, we appreciate everybody for joining us on this episode of Call Like I See It. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, tell us what you think, send it to a friend, check it out on YouTube. Until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Romana. All right, we'll talk to you next time.